The world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Argeretis. I hope wherever you are in the world listening to this, that it finds you happy and healthy. Today's episode is something that is very close to my heart, which is nutrition and diet. In particular, we discuss the ketogenic diet and why it not be why it may not be as healthy and effective as many people claim. I've got someone on who's a, uh, a PhD and who understands the subject very well. He's also a very interesting guy, and we have a, a pretty good chat about it. Just to remind you guys that I have two separate projects going on that run in a parallel with Liberation Mental Podcast. The first is my one-on-one coaching. So this is where I take on someone who is looking to really elevate their lives to the next level. Very often it's someone who's had success in a certain area, whether it be business or a corporate career, and they're just realizing that maybe this isn't what they had expected it to be, and they have a deep feeling that perhaps there's more to life than what they've been told, and they want to start looking at some other elements of themselves, including the spiritual component and maybe even focusing on the health and, and well-being component. And so I come in and I help guide them through that and just help help them raise their games in that in that department. The other type of person is someone who just knows they need to take their life to the next level, but just can't seem to figure out how to do that. That's one of the, the types of clients I have the most fun working with is uh, just helping them figure out the path to go from where they are to where they want to be. Uh, one of my the first people I worked with, I just got a message from him and he was telling me how his life is basically how he had always imagined it to be. He started out, when, when he came to me, he was working what he considered to be a dead-end job and he wanted to be a photographer and travel the world doing a very specific type of photography. And uh, he's now doing that and he sent me a message to just say how, how happy he was and, and how grateful he was and it just it made my day and I, I, that's what I do, you know, that's how I've lived my life. I've always wanted the best of everything and I've never wanted to compromise and I've largely been able to do that. And that's what I'm helping men do with, with my one-on-one coaching. So if that's something that interests you, head on over to liberationmental.com and you can fill out the application form to have a, a free coaching session with me. Now, this session will, it might be life-changing in itself. You might not need any more after that and there's no obligation after it. But uh, either way, you'll get a hell of a lot out of it. So just do yourself a favor if you're interested and if what I've been talking about feels like it may be right for you, head on over, fill out the form and book a call with me and we'll have that call. Also, for those of you guys who feel you might have more affinity for the same sort of thing, but in a group context, next year in March, we are doing the first Liberation Mentor Retreat that is happening in Hawaii. It's going to be from the 15th to the 21st of March. And as I said at the beginning of the last show, it is going to be something truly, truly special. There is nothing else like it. I'm combining a bunch of very powerful methods and exercises and activities, and we're putting them all together in a package that is not only going to help you become 
will move you closer towards your very, very best self and help you break through a bunch of limitations that you may have been experiencing in your life. But it's also going to be a hell of a lot of fun. I did a dry run for this uh, about six weeks ago, and it was one of the best times of my life. And I, I know this one that's coming up is going to be even better. So if you're feeling like you're not where you want to be, if you're feeling like you need something different, something special to help you become the man that you've always wanted to be, this retreat might just be for you. There's 12 spots available. Six have been taken already, and the other six will go pretty quickly. If you want to find out more about it, again, you're going to have to jump on a call with me because I am vetting the applicants quite closely. I don't just want anyone there. I want people who I know it's going to help and who I know are going to get a lot out of it. So best thing to do if you want to come along for that, head on over to liberationmental.com forward slash retreats. And you can apply for a call with me regarding that. Okay, guys, let's dive into the next episode of the show with Dr. Kyle Mamounis. Welcome back, brothers. This is the latest episode of the Liberation Mental Podcast, and I am with Kyle Mamounis, who is a doctor of biology. Is that correct, Kyle? Nutritional science. But you're studying at the moment in a biological context. You're still... Biochemistry, yeah. Biochemistry, that's it. Okay, cool. Yeah, Carl, I'm so happy to have you on the show because, you know, I first heard about you on uh, Danny Roddy's podcast, which is great. If anyone's listening to this and they're interested in, in nutrition, I highly recommend you go listen to some of Danny Roddy's interviews. But, you know, nutrition is something that I have been interested in since as long as I can remember. I remember when I was, I think, 10, my parents became friends with this this old Hungarian dude who lived in South Africa and he was a, he was a doctor of something. I can't remember exactly what, but he was a nutrition specialist and he ran like a health retreat about an hour away from my home. And as my parents became friends with him, they asked him to teach me about nutrition. And, and he used to give me these little impromptu lectures about why I should never eat sugar and <laughs> why this was going to kill me. And that was the worst thing to eat and blah, blah, blah. And, it kind of started a fascination with nutrition for me from a young age. And I think it also kind of fucked me up from a young age because, uh, you know, there's nothing that elicits or very few things that elicit as powerful as a response as when you question someone's diet or their nutrition. And you, I'm sure, have experienced this a lot because you are come down on the other side of the current, I don't even want to say it's an argument because no one's really arguing for your side. Um, <laughs> very few people are arguing for your side. But basically in the, the world of diet and nutrition now, and also the world of bro science, there is this major push towards, it's taken various names and it, it goes through various iterations. It's currently the ketogenic style of eating. But basically over the last 10 years, we've there's the zeitgeist that any form of sugar and any form of carbohydrates are basically going to kill you really quickly and make you fat and give you type 2 diabetes and early onset dementia and a whole host of other issues. And your research, which, I mean, you're a PhD and you're not just some crack dude who's, who's coming up with some crazy theories. Your research has led you to believe that that's not necessarily true. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Well, can, can you start us off? What... What was the first thing that got you thinking, well, maybe sugar isn't as bad as everyone's told us it is? Well, when I started my PhD program, it was 2012 or the 
maybe the fall of 2011. Anyway, around then. And I was on, I don't think I was quite ketogenic at that point, but I was on a very low carb diet. And it was actually uh, raw meat centric. So I was mostly eating raw meat. Okay. And I had a whole system. I would, there was, uh, I was in New Jersey and I would buy meat from uh, like an Amish uh, at a co-op. And once a week I would get um, like a, a package of raw beef suet and this stew meat that's like just chunks of beef. And I would have a certain amount of them thawed and in the freezer. And I had a whole system that at any given time, you know, I'd be, I knew how much I was going to eat and I would uh-huh. chop them together in a food processor. And it was really simple. And that was the best part about it. Okay. So I, I went into my graduate school studies being like a, a pre, basically maybe not full on like religious convictions, but pretty seriously believing in low carb stuff. And, you know, but let me, let me stop you right there before you, if you don't mind, Carl, before you even go into, um, I should have asked this question earlier. What prompted you to eat raw meat or, or to follow the low carb paradigm? Like why were you just suddenly eating raw meat? I guess. <laughs> well, that started from, so I, I went from extreme diet to extreme diet from, uh, about the age of 20, like in the middle of college, I started hanging out with some vegetarians and then I hear about veganism, you know, it's the extreme Mm -hmm. version. So then I start doing that or looking into that and start adopting that stuff. And then I start hearing about raw veganism, which is where you just eat like raw fruits and vegetables. Yep. I've done it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. So (laughs) then I did that. And at this point, I mean, I didn't even know what calories were. So like I lost a ton of weight, probably about 30 pounds. So I'm 5'10 and I was probably 165. And then when I was a vegetarian, probably like 155. And then, you know, vegan and raw vegan, like into like sub 140. So I was super skinny, but I had this, you know, real belief in it that like I had to detox or something. So I was on, um, I was on the forum for the website associated with the company that, you know, David Wolf, he's like a big, not familiar with him. Yeah. He's like a, I, sometimes I see people quoting him on Facebook, like just people like, like friends and family. And I'm like, oh my God, that's that guy that I, like was my guru 15 years ago. Um, he's kind of wacky. Like he wears, you know, like stuff from India and he like drinks mushroom tea and <laughs> like w- whatever. So he sells a lot of products like superfoods. He was one of the first guys to really monetize superfoods like okay. goji berries or whatever. Stuff that's supposedly better because it's grown like in these special mountains. So I was on his forum and there was a lot of people and for years I was on the forum and then I started hearing people talk about raw animal foods and I thought that was intriguing. And it started off with uh, raw milk. So I was able to get unpasteurized milk because I was in New Jersey, but close to the Pennsylvania border. Sure. Carl, can I stop you one more time? I guess an even better question to ask is what was the root of this fascination and attempt to control your diet is maybe a, a better place to start even. Mm. Yeah, that is a good question because I never had any health problems as a kid Mm -hmm. and I didn't really have any as an adult. So, but I do remember like one time when I was a kid, I just gave up drinking soda. I was like 12 or something. And I guess I saw something on TV that like sugar was bad for you. It was empty calories. I think that's the phrase that they used in the nineties. They used to call it Mm -hmm. empty calories. Yeah. And I just, I was like, oh my God. And I just start, I, cause I remember I used to drink like six cans of Coca-Cola a day 
Damn. And then I stopped cold turkey and I got a caffeine withdrawal headache <laughs> at like age, you know, it was like 11 or 12, like a whole weekend. I was just headache. And I, I know it again, even to this day, I'll drink soda, drink it regularly. Like I did when I was a kid, mm-hmm. not for any like health reason, but just, I broke the habit. Mm-hmm. So I've always been attracted to the idea of, um, I've actually broken myself of this, which I'm happy about, but I, I had the idea that there's a perfect diet or there's a perfect way of eating Yes, that if I found it, I would ascend <laughs> yeah, as a, as I a had, being. <laughs> I, had the same, I had the exact same thing. It's so fascinating. You say that I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And other things too, like when I heard about, um, you know, colonics, like where mm-hmm. they like put water up your butt and then flush <laughs> out your colon, <laughs> you know, I heard people say like, Oh, did you know when Elvis died? He had like, 40 pounds of fecal matter in his colon. And and then you, you start thinking like, oh, maybe I have fecal matter in my colon. And if I could get rid of that, I'd be five pounds lighter and just feel so... Like just these ideas, you know, that you're going to yeah. discover some nutrient that you were deficient in and then you're going to feel good all the time. Sure. There's a, there's a common theme with the health and wellness industry that I find very discouraging and that I try not to have anything to do with, which is they use, I suppose religion uses this to an extent as well, whereby they, they cut you and then they try to sell you the bandaid. So it's like, Hey, did you know that like, you're going to get type two diabetes uh, because you're doing this, you better eat our keto cookie or, <laughs> right. Hey dude, did you know you're going to go to hell? You better, you know, follow this religion or whatever it might be. And I, I guess that's where the, the trap that you and I both fall into with that diet thing is this, Hey, you're not perfect. X, Y, Z can make you perfect. Yeah. Yeah. There is kind of a perfection aspect to it. Cause I think people wouldn't do extreme diets because you meet people along the way. Like when I was becoming a vegetarian, I knew all these people and they were kind of normal and they would eat junk food sometimes or whatever. And they just kind of didn't eat meat, but that didn't appeal to me because I wasn't looking for a normal thing. I was looking, I was searching for something. Okay. And so I would leave, you know, I would meet these people. It's like they were along a path, you know, and I would, I would meet them and they, they would teach me something, which a lot of it ends up being misinformation, but I would learn something from them. And then I'd go, you guys are done. You're not continuing on the path. Like, (laughs) (laughs) because they weren't, you know, they didn't have that compulsion. And so that's what I did. And I found all different kinds of diets and made my way to this like raw meat eating diet. Yeah, so, so to just catch up the story, you you were eating uh, raw beef suet and then you arrived at college. Yeah, so at graduate school. So I had already gone through regular college with a biology degree. And I actually graduated with the intention of doing nutritional research. And then I started reading a lot of the science from people that I guess were low carb people. And I got discouraged and I thought, you know, all the science has been done. Like, we know what to eat, you know, it's this Mm -hmm. diet. So for a few years, I just worked in commercial labs, like mostly doing microbiology. And then I finally decided, okay, I want to go to graduate school because I I do actually want to do research. And I went there with the intention that I'm going to do more research to even further prove that low carb or keto or whatever you want to call it, carnivore dieting is the best. Mm -hmm. So that was my intention. And, you know, you have to take some classes when you're a graduate student and I just started learning in depth, uh, like the biochemistry of metabolism. And, you know, there's room for learning all that stuff and kind of believing one or the other diet is good. But my mind got opened up to different ideas. And 
especially when I would learn something that I didn't know before and that it seemed like the people that I was listening to, like say I was watching a YouTube video of like Gary Taubes or something, he was big at mm-hmm. the time. I would notice that he misspoke about something, just like a basic little scientific fact. And that would really like bother me mm-hmm. because then I started thinking like, wait a second. <laughs> he doesn't wrong about that. He might be wrong about something else. Yes. Like he's not the ultimate authority. And then... I did actually, I met Danny Roddy, the first ancestral health symposium, mm-hmm. which is this like paleo kind of scientific conference, which is there's scientists that present stuff, talks, and then there's a lot of people that are just interested in paleo diet and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I met him and I started kind of hearing about Ray Pete, these different ideas. And at first I was like, this is just wacky. And then you know, just the curiosity got to me and I started reading and I'd be like, you know, at first there were things that overlapped, like uh, Ray Pete and the whole kind of paleo and low carb communities. They all agree that cholesterol isn't bad. Cholesterol is not going to, you know, give you a heart attack mm-hmm. and saturated fat. You know, you can eat meat, you can eat animal fat and it's not just going to kill you like everybody said in the seventies. So I was like, okay. And then he said something else like, you know, say sugar isn't, isn't bad or even some really basic scientific things about like proteins in the cell stuff that's not really interesting on a human health level mm-hmm. but that that he discussed and then I started taking these classes and I saw the way that they were presenting the information and I was like oh but he said this and then I would go and read things and realize that the way things were presented in the classes I was taking was like one perspective and it just it gave me this bigger perspective and eventually I, uh, something just cracked in the low carb thing and I started, um, you just adding carbs back. Okay. And can you tell me what I'm very interested in is, uh, well, two things. The first is what happened to you when you started adding carbs back? Cause I would have expected you to die within 45 minutes. <laughs> well, at first it was, it was basically nothing. The biggest effect that I noticed was, So every Tuesday for my first year in grad school, I had Tuesdays off. Like for whatever reason, I I didn't have any classes. I didn't teach on Tuesdays. So I would stay home on Tuesdays because I had a long commute from where I was living and Rutgers University where I was going. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going to a jujitsu gym and they had classes in the morning. So I'd go Tuesday morning and I would do a full hour of Muay Thai and then a full hour of jujitsu. And I'm not really a morning person. So, but I would do it every Tuesday and I would do it fasted and I was on a low carb diet. So when wow. I was done, I had just, you know, dug so deep into my body's energetic reserves. I, I felt like hell for the rest of the Tuesday. I couldn't even do, you know, like if I had some papers to grade or I was, had work to do for my classes or whatever it was, I almost couldn't do anything, you know, say the one class was like at nine or 10. And then it, so I, I'm home before noon and uh, I would eat then, you know, eat my low carb meal, take a shower, and I would feel a headache coming. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't stop it. You know, I, it, drinking water didn't help, eating the food that I had didn't really help. And I would sometimes it would be a really bad headache. Sometimes it would kind of go away. But I, I felt like I was digging into my body's reserves in a, in a bad way. Like I was sure. using too much. I added carbs in. I stopped getting those kind of, I guess they're almost like migraines. Yeah. I've experienced them. Yeah. Right. So that was one of the big differences is that I could work out for longer and, you know, go home and not have that kind of feeling like I just ripped out 
stuff from my liver and then, you know, my body was struggling to recover. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that because that was one of the first things that started the, the cracks appearing in my paradigm, my nutrition paradigm, because I'd been a hardcore, low-carb, anti-sugar zealot for, I mean, since I was 20 years old. And then at about, I think maybe 34, 35, maybe even a little bit later, I read a book by um, a jiu-jitsu guy called Andre Galvao, who's basically one of the greatest of all time. And mm-hmm. in it, he, he talks about his training regimen and his nutrition. And one of the things he mentions is that he tried the low-carb diet and it didn't make him feel very good. And I remember that was, he was someone I really respected at the time. And I thought to myself, well, I mean, this guy, he has to be able to perform athletically at the highest level. And he's saying that he didn't do well on no carb, but we were told that that is literally the best diet for everyone. Everyone, no one should be eating carbs because genetically we all come from cavemen or Neanderthals or whatever it might be. And that just means full stop, you shouldn't be eating carbs. And it got me thinking, well, maybe it's not a one size fits all thing. So it's interesting that jiu-jitsu also or or athletic training and martial arts played a role in you starting to see that there's another way or there's there's, there's different belief systems. Yeah, I think it helps to have one of those kind of anaerobic, like if you lift weights or something, that's where you really tell when you cut carbs out, you know, because that extra push that when you're on a low-carb diet using glucose, that part of of exercising, like the anaerobic part. Mm Mm-hmm. As opposed to? Uh, as opposed to if your primary exercise was something like swimming or running, you could probably get away with low carb and not notice a performance change as much. Okay. Or maybe maybe even just an improvement. Okay. So, but yeah. In fact, Carl, let's, let's make this conversation a little bit more technical. Um, again, I'm not a nutrition specialist and I'm, I'm not, I don't have a science degree. So please bear with me. This might be crudely explained, but I'm hoping you're going to fill in the gaps. I actually got into an argument on my Facebook page with one of the listeners of the show. He made the statement, sugar is poison, right? And I said to him, well, tell me a little bit more about that. It's my understanding that your brain runs on, on glucose, which is a type of sugar. And, you know, your muscles burn, you use, uh, your, your liver converts glucose into glycogen and then uses that to fuel muscular activity as well. So why, if, if, sugar is a poison. Why does your body run so well in it? And then his argument was that Don D'Agostino explained that it's only poisonous when you eat it, but once it's converted into glucose that the brain can use through uh, glyconeogenesis or something, then it's okay. And I just couldn't, I was like, I don't, there's a disconnect here. So you're saying it's okay. It's poison if it goes through your mouth into your stomach, but if it goes through all the biological processes and then gets turned into sugar that goes into your brain, then it's okay. And he couldn't really say anything to that. Can you explain to us a little bit about that process of, of what happens when you eat sugar and, and why it isn't poisonous to you? Yeah, that's actually, that's, that's a new one. I've never heard that explanation. It, it sounds completely ad hoc, like somebody's just trying to justify why it's bad in one situation and not the other. Uh-huh. So yeah, when you consume glucose, it gets absorbed just like anything else in the gut. And you know, it ends up in the bloodstream. That's why you know people that have are you know being diagnosed with blood sugar disorders, they'll be given a glucose tolerance test, and it's usually oral. So you'll have like a certain amount of a, a sugary beverage that's you know especially made for this purpose. You drink it, and then you know a doctor, a technician, or whoever will take your blood over time and chart how fast 
the glucose gets into your blood and then how quickly the, your blood sugar goes back down to close to what it was before you took the drink. Mm-hmm. And it's a little different when you consume. So when people talk about sugar, usually they mean either sucrose, you know, like table sugar or high fructose corn syrup, you know, the, the sweeteners in most uh, sweet beverages, stuff like that. That has fructose and that takes a little bit of a different path. But even that, when I was looking into that years ago, I was looking at these different claims about sugar and how bad it is. And even fructose in the, I think in the gut, something like over 80% of it gets converted to glucose before it gets into your blood. Mm -hmm. And then the liver converts another, almost all of it (laughs) to glucose. So there is a couple of issues like, um, there's some medical issues. Like if you have a fructose absorption disorder, some people just don't absorb it that well. It actually, it stays in your gut and it can ferment and it can cause people, you know, like gut symptoms, you know, like bloating or gas production when it gets lower down and bacteria get to it. But that's not what people are talking about when they're talking about that it's poison. You know, they're talking about that some kind of toxin, you absorb it. So basically, yeah, it gets, these things get absorbed. They get, packaged in a certain way so when when you your blood sugar is high assuming everything's working correct it's you know shoved into your muscles mm-hmm. your brain gets first dibs your blood cell your red blood cells are high priority cuz those those two tissues are pretty pretty exclusively run on glucose okay. and then your your liver kind of hangs back and just picks it up when it's plentiful and stores it as glycogen and then after your meal when you've used all that stuff, then it kind of reverses the flow. And that's when it, you know, breaks down the glycogen into glucose and your liver starts putting it out for the other tissues. Okay. So the other situation is that you make that same thing, glucose out of amino acids, which come out of either dietary or your own muscle tissue protein. Okay. And that's called gluconeogenesis. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So that's when Tell me, and I'll call me out if I'm incorrect about anything here, but that's, it's my understanding that your body wants glucose and it'll do anything it can to get glucose. So if you don't give it any glucose or any sugar that converts into glucose, it then takes the other things from either your diet or even your muscle tissue and breaks them down to get glucose. So it's always trying, it's, its goal is I want glucose no matter what. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. You even, even if you're eating a lot of carbs, some small amount of protein is still, because usually in the body, when it comes to biology, nothing's ever zero. So things very rarely get turned to zero and they very rarely get turned to a hundred percent. But there's always like some amount of gluconeogenesis happening, some small amount when you're eating carbs. Okay. And as you cut out carbs, that goes up, that the, the amount goes up. I see. So your body wants this glucose at all costs. It has a bunch of built-in mechanisms to turn anything you eat into glucose if you don't have enough dietary glucose. To me, logically, the idea, having heard that, and again, maybe what you're telling me is not true, but I, I don't see why you'd be lying to me and you seem to be well-informed. But to me, the logical course of action then would be to provide my body something as close to glucose as possible, which would be foods containing a lot of either glucose itself or different types of sugar. Now, the low-carb team or keto team or paleo team or whatever they're called this week, 
claims that that's not a good thing. What what is their reasoning behind saying that it's not good to just give it what it wants and it should you should rather use this more difficult, expensive roundabout way, biologically expensive roundabout way? What is their how are they claiming that that what's their logic, I guess? There's a couple different arguments. One big one that I heard a lot that I've really just hated and I had to like do a lot of just thinking and I ended up going back to the Ancestral Health Symposium in 2017 to give a talk specifically against is the idea that sugar causes insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And that's just, even just that phrase, it really exposes a misunderstanding because insulin is, you know, it's, um, it's pretty much one of the only anabolic hormones. Most hormones are there to, they get released to break things down. Catabolic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When there's a, so there's a lot more catabolic mechanisms than anabolic. It's a lot more of a complicated um, thing when, because uh, you kind of have to, you know, the body's like making all these deals like, okay, we're going to, we're running low on energy. So what can we turn off that? Like, what's a lower priority thing that we can kind of turn this down a little bit? We can't turn down the brain. Like, there's, you know, there's certain things that you never want to turn down. Sure. So there's all the, the way these hormones interact is like, okay, keep this going lower this a little bit, take from here, take from here later, you know, when it gets even worse. But uh, insulin, you know, it, it stores glucose and turns up the usage of glucose when you have a lot of it. And it also interacts with some of the amino acids. So in proteins, like I forget which ones, but some of them are more related to insulin than others. But basically when you eat protein, it also stimulates insulin secretion. I see. And insulin also helps shuttle those amino acids where they need to go protein synthesis i mean that's why that's why bodybuilders are they mess around with insulin i've heard that yes. i don't know if this is true but a friend of mine is a, a very high level bodybuilder he told me that most professional bodybuilders are, are all diabetic because they've been fucking around by injecting insulin for so long because insulin as you said it's anabolic it gives them it causes all the muscles and, and connective tissue and stuff to grow but ultimately they short circuit their body's own insulin mechanism and ultimately become diabetic. Yes. And it's also because they tend to take growth hormone, human growth okay. hormone. And that is growth hormone actually opposes insulin. So really, yeah, it's not a super powerful, but a growth hormone, it pushes the body slightly towards oxidizing fats instead of sugars. Mm. And I guess the theory is that when you're growing, it's a, it's a more long-term process. So like children will have more growth hormone and they'll use a little bit more. Um, of course, when they're exercising, it, it, it switches, you know, but growth hormone gets released a lot in the fasted state. Mm -hmm. that's, that's another thing actually that people say it's good to not eat carbs because it increases growth hormone secretion the same way that fasting does. Mm -hmm. uh, and growth hormone, you know, and in that same state, you're getting more free fatty acids in the blood because you're, you're not having the glucose. So your body tries to compensate with that. So those are all related growth hormone, free fatty acids in the blood coming from, you know, your fat cells or wherever. Okay. So that, that also is something that bodybuilders take that directly opposes insulin. And I believe if you take it long enough, you can kind of have a permanent or semi-permanent type two diabetes okay. situation. Yeah. I mean, which is, I don't know about you, but I, I don't look at that as a, as a good trade-off. <laughs> you know, like I'd, I'd rather just not be diabetic and, and not have monstrous muscles. But anyway, uh, so insulin resistance is their first argument is that that consumption of glucose 
or, or sugar in any form causes insulin resistance. And you say that's not necessarily true because you're actually question, calling into question the phrase insulin resistance itself. Yeah, a little bit. So they're usually focusing on the wrong things. Some of the symptoms, so if you do have insulin say you're pre-diabetic or you're diabetic or whatever, one of the big symptoms that people can measure on their own is just their fasting blood glucose. Mm -hmm. So if people are getting into that disease state, their blood glucose will never really get to a level that's like normal for being fasted, like either first thing in the morning or in between meals. Mm -hmm. And that usually improves when you cut carbs out. Yeah. Now this, this is a very important point because I was just talking to a woman who's studying nutrition and I was telling her a little, a little bit about your work and, and Ray Pete's theories. And, and she said to me, well then, yeah, how do you, how do you explain how when people cut out sugar, that their blood sugar levels improve by decreasing? And I didn't have an answer for her. Could you, yeah, could you continue with that or expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, what happens is is you're just not giving the system as much sugar anymore. So it doesn't have to use its insulin signaling. It doesn't have to secrete as much hormone and rely on that to put the sugar away, you know, to store it and take it out of the blood. I see. So you're not making the insulin more effective. You're reducing the need for it. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Now, if you give those same people a glucose tolerance test, so you give them a big drink of glucose, they will almost certainly dispose of it slowly like a diabetic would because their insulin system is not actually functioning that, that well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's just that they're not challenging it with that sugar in the first place or with glucose or whatever it is. Uh, I see. Okay. So that's, that, uh, that's given me a slightly clearer understanding. That's, that's the first thing that's been debunked is that sugar is causing insulin resistance, which you know, causes this host of negative effects. And then what, what, is, what are other reasons they give for why eating sugar is, is negative? I've heard people claim that it's inflammatory. Okay. Now, I don't even know what that means. I don't know why they think that most people that have insulin resistance and most people that have, you know, obesity, they're getting that from endotoxin. Okay. I don't know how familiar you are with that. A little bit. So endotoxin is, it's my understanding, it's substances released by, um, is it bacterial overgrowth in the gut? Yeah. And that, and, and that causes an inflammatory response because your body's like, basically all these bacteria and stuff are, are like eliminating directly into your system. And that causes this, yeah, this response, this inflammatory response. Is that right? Yeah. And it's, a, it's like a low-grade inflammatory response, not like an acute, you know, serious infection where your body would go into shock or anything like that. So okay. it's like a it's like a chronic and it's basically if somebody has too much of the wrong type of bacteria in the section of their intestine that cuz some sections are more absorptive than others, so higher up you absorb more nutrients there. So if you get these bacteria there and they're growing on things either if your digestion is too slow or maybe you're not secreting enough stomach acid or whatever it is to kind of keep that population down or gut barrier function. There's all different explanations for why this could be happening. But mm -hmm. the point is whenever I looked into this and whenever they study the blood of people that have, you know, diabetic symptoms or obesity, they always have postprandial. Mm -hmm. They eat a meal and then their blood is taken and they have a higher level of this uh, endotoxin, which is also called lipopolysaccharide, in their blood than normal people. 
you know, that don't have that insulin resistance. Hmm. And that also causes the inflammation. Now, if you stop eating sugar, you cut down on the sugar that can get to that bacteria. So they'll produce, you know, less of that endotoxin and you'll get less of it. So if you're having some you know, type of inflammation and insulin resistance, or if they're both related, you can make that appear like it's going away from cutting the sugar out, but the bacteria is still there and you're not actually fundamentally changing the situation. But I, I guess in a kind of, in the same way that you're removing the challenge from your insulin system, when people have lower fasting glucose on a low carb diet, you're sort of eliminating that challenge to the system, but not dealing with the problem. I understand. Okay. So, I mean, these are, this definitely gives me, I guess, a fresh perspective. And I'm sure those listening, especially those who've studied nutrition in any sort of depth, it might've started opening a window into a new, a new paradigm potentially, but what is the case for sugar? Like, why do you think, for example, I'm sure you consume a reasonable amount of sugar now in your diet. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and why, when you have sugar, are you, are you doing it because you feel that it's providing your body a positive benefit? Yes. So the thing about the low carb diet, the best part about it really is the ketones themselves, you know, when people are in ketosis mm -hmm. and that's another one of the arguments is that they think these ketones are so great. And actually the ketones are pretty great. Mm -hmm. If you could just take ketones, uh, it's a fine fuel. There's really nothing. The only problem with it is there's two main ones and one of them can spontaneously turn into acetone, but it's not that big of a deal. You exhale it. Usually you can smell it on people's breath when they're... Oh, that's why they get weird breath when they're on low carb and stuff. Yeah. It's usually sweet. It's like a sweet smell. Okay. But the ketones themselves are good. The problem is that you go into this sort of stress mode to produce them. So the main reason I consume carbs is like what I was saying before about how I would feel like I just really beat my body down when I would exercise very strenuously on a low carb diet. I want to keep my body out of that stress state, out of that state where it's perceiving, you know, that it's under, there's not that much nutrition. It has to dig into its reserves you know, cortisol and all those kinds of stress hormones get really high. I want to avoid that. Which is, you know, so it's strange because the current paradigm, it seems to want you to become as stressed out as possible. Like, I mean, that is what the average trainer will teach today. Or if you go to a CrossFit gym or, you know, pretty much any workout type place, they will tell you, you should work out in a fasted state and eat a low carb diet. And it's almost, I don't know, Carl, it's a strange thing that I've, I've noticed is this weird tendency to look for like almost like self-flagellation. Like the more, the more you're suffering, the better it is for your body. Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the harder you're pushing, like in, in, that's one of the reasons I don't really like CrossFit is this, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, they have this ma like unofficial mascot called Rabdo the Clown. Rhabdo being short for rhabdomyolysis, which is a, <laughs> it's like a chronic, yeah. chronic, an acute disease that you can acquire if you exercise too much because your muscles start breaking down and getting filtered out through your kidneys or something. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's a horrific disease. And it's kind of like, they're kind of proud of that, you know? And there's this weird, like, you know, I only ate 300 calories yesterday and it was 98% protein and 
I haven't eaten carbs for six years. And it's like, it's kind of, the more I listen to, to different points of view, the more I'm realizing that it's actually the exact opposite of what you should be doing if you want to be healthy. Yeah. Yeah. There is kind of like, I guess, no pain, no gain, that idea. And also dieting, a lot of the other diets, like vegetarian diets, they have a, a history in religious ascetic practices where you're denying yourself something. Sure. And there's something about human nature that revels in denying. So if people, I think a lot of the people that go on these diets, I actually don't have that much of a sweet tooth. <laughs> like when I was a kid, I preferred um, salty snacks like chips to candy. But I, a lot of people that go on these low-carb diets, you can kind of see them in groups talking about their experiences or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they obviously really love sweet things and they take a lot of pride in denying themselves that. And, you know, it, it pushes them forward. And, you know, if, if that was true, then I guess it would be a good thing. But it's almost like people are quick to accept that denying what your body kind of asking you to eat is good. I don't think they've really thought about it. It just seems like, well, if it was easy, then, yeah, you know. Which is strange because that, that ties into a more spiritual, I guess you'd call it a spiritual concept that I've been thinking about for a long, long, long time. And that is this idea that that exactly anything that that is easy is of low value and that anything good must be suffered, uh, uh, requires suffering to attain. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out like, A, is that true? And, and the other thing I'm trying to figure out is where did it come from? And the more I, I trace it back, the more I see it comes from usually religion, traditional, especially traditional monotheistic religions, Christianity being the prime example, you know, like Jesus suffered on the cross. So, you know, let's, we're trying to be more like Jesus. We should be suffering more. And then the other day I had a, a really big breakthrough when I was watching, it was a documentary about the Gilded Age in America, which I think was the turn of the, at the turn of the 19th century when it became the 20th century. Yeah. And there was this huge push towards industrialization and there were all these, these land barons that were, and, and industrial uh, factory owners that were becoming super wealthy and this huge gulf developed between the working class and the, and the capitalists. And you know, I saw, there was this this video of like this old grainy video of these people working in this factory and they were working like dogs, dude. I mean, they were like, you could see they were beaten down. And I realized there and then that this idea that you should be working yourself to death, it comes from the capitalists. It's, it comes from the, and I, and, and I want to say straight up, I'm a capitalist, right? I believe in the capitalist system, but I, I mean more specifically the guys who have money, right? Because mm -hmm. they want you to be working hard in their factory or their corporation or their their field they, they that's a noble fucking thing in, in that case for you to be killing yourself in their field but mm -hmm. they don't want to be working like that you know and it's just this this thing i've been focusing on i've noticed a lot of the most successful people i know it's not that they don't work right but they 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 enter into a kind of a flow that's it's enjoyable and challenging and it is characterized by certain periods where they have to maybe do something they don't like or, or focus or, or buckle down, but it's not this constant unrelenting grind and suffering and drudgery right. that we're told is the only way forwards. You know, like you just got to keep going. Like if you get knocked down 20 times, you got to get back up. And it's like, Jesus Christ, man, it doesn't seem like <laughs> a very fun way to live to me, if I'm honest. 
And you know, the funniest thing is I noticed, I, I don't know if you've experienced something similar, but I was at a point where if I wasn't working, I started to feel guilty. Like if I wasn't mm. focused on my business and sitting down and grinding and fucking, I would feel really guilty. And, and whenever I get into that state, I notice I don't actually make much money in my business. Things don't really flow. But when I slow down and I, I let go of that and I just try to enjoy myself and put good things out there and, and see what the most natural flowing way to do things is, everything improves and the figures go up, make more money, get more clients, mm -hmm. have more fun. So I, it's strange I'm to tie it all back into this conversation we're having. It's the same with diet now. Like I'm just enjoying food. You know, I don't pig out. I don't fucking sit there like shoving cake <laughs> into my face. And right. But if I see like something that I really want to eat and that like looks tasty, I'll eat it, you know? And, and the weirdest thing is since I've started doing that, I don't crave stuff the way I used to. Mm -hmm. it, it's such a, anyway, that was a, a long winding rant, but um, it's just good for me to be able to, or I appreciate being able to talk to someone who understands it, you know? Yeah, there's a lot about that self-flagellation and suffering, which I think that I think suffering is important, but it reaches a level where people, uh, obviously many people turn suffering, whether it's, I mean, almost anything like they, they can revel in it and derive a, a kind of sick pleasure in it. Sure. You know, maybe they complain a lot or like at work, everything's always going wrong. Everybody around mm -hmm. them is stupid and they never, but you'll notice like they never um, really Fix do anything it. to change it. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so after like two years of that, you have to really ask yourself or ask them, do you enjoy this? Like, is there, sure. is, are you actually getting pleasure out of being able to just complain about other people? Like maybe that's allowing you to, you know, whatever it is, like ignore. I think that's why people, you know, that thing where people will cut themselves. <laughs> yeah. Self-harm, self-harming it's called. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that the main psychological reason why people do that is because they're, they feel guilty or they're worried about something else and it's a distraction. I can believe that. I can, yeah, sure. I mean, coming back to your point that you mentioned earlier is like that you think suffering is good. It's like I'm at the point where I read something a while back where they said it was actually like a, someone challenging the, the, the tenets of Christianity and this guy, he was saying, he was challenging this idea that, oh, well, Christ suffered for your sins on the cross. And this guy said, well, what's so good about that? He said, what, why is suffering better than, in any way better than joy? Like, why, why are you putting so much value on suffering? And it really, that really struck me. And, and then I heard something else, which, which kind of helped me with this as well, which there's this belief that, that Buddha said life is suffering, right? That, that floats around, you know, mm -hmm. it's, and that's actually a misattributed quote. The, the true quote is that life contains suffering. Well, the, in fact, the first quote is, the misattributed one is all life is suffering, but the, the true quote is all life contains suffering. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately, which is, yeah, there is suffering in life. No one gets through the human ride without suffering at some point. But man, I want to minimize my suffering as much as possible. I don't want to prolong it or extend it or glorify it or worship it because I just don't really see that much virtue in it. I mean, sure, every now and then it's good to to suffer a little bit, you know, just to remind you that you're alive or to to give you a, a, a like a relative emotion to yeah. uh, put against joy. But I, I just don't see what the, I just don't hold it in as high regard as some people do. Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, obviously, it resonates with a lot of people because 
so many people fall into these things and you can, people do just respond. You know, if somebody says, oh, I suffered for this, that another person will, va- will then value it higher. Yes, exactly right. And so there's, there's clearly something there, you know, evolutionarily, I guess. And so it, it doesn't surprise me that diets, you know, whether it's low carb or vegetarian or whatever, a lot of times, you know, some of the marketing is, oh, isn't this so great? You can eat as much as you want of this or you can <laughs> lose weight. But some of the marketing is almost like suffer. Like here's a, a way to suffer and you know it's going to work because it's suffering. Sure. Yes, exactly. Like I'll feel the burn or like, um, you know, P90X and Sandy, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how they're marketed. It's like, oh, yeah. do you think you can withstand this horrible experience that we're selling you? Yeah. You know, the, the, the more, this is a theme of my show and, and the work I do with my clients. It's something I keep coming back to is that if you dig deep enough into anything, you will always at the end of it, find a paradox. And the truth is that if you want to be a healthy person, it does require some discipline, right? But it also requires a little bit of uh, the opposite of discipline. I mean, like you have to give yourself a little bit of freedom. There's a, a Chinese quote, which is a little bit of leniency and your strength doubles. You know, and it's kind of like when they, mm. they make a kind of um, in engineering, you know, they'll give a bridge, a little bit of a give to it. Like there'll be like some suspension parts of it that allow it to like resist because if it's too stiff, it'll, it'll just crack. Right. And, and it's, yeah. it's the same. It's this idea. Like I lived my life for 20 years being this hyper disciplined dude, like literally, like I, I don't think I ate more than a hundred grams of refined sugar a year for close to 15 years. Like, literally, <laughs> it, it, it was crazy. And, and I'm at the point now where nah, dude, it's like, I, I want to enjoy life a little bit, but at the same time, I'm not swinging completely to the other way. I'm kind of moving away from these ridiculous extremes of like, it's either no carb or it's no fat or it's fucking workout 14 times a day or it's, you know what I mean? Like this, you have to find this like healthy balance, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's different for everybody, but yeah, there's a, there is an idea that it's, you know, things are better when you're suffering or that you should always be disciplined. I think that they, this, the same thing with, um, you know, s- steel weapons are are made with a little bit of give in them because they'll shatter if they're too. But yeah, it, it that does seem like a, you know, if you're not flexible, you'll just break or something like that. That's that's definitely and in a way that requires maybe not discipline is the right word, but it requires a different type of mental strength to know when to be flexible. Exactly, exactly. I've had that same thought before many times that 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 itself requires a mental strength to, it's actually quite easy to just completely eliminate something, to just say, I'm never right. having that again, right? It's relatively easy, but to know that, okay, I'm going to have a slice of cake every now and then. And, and to just stay within that little parameter of like, just as keep it as a little treat that actually takes more mental strength. And I really appreciate you brought that up because I totally understand that. And I agree with you completely. Yeah, it it definitely does. And I think that's that's how I stayed. There's no way that I could make the choice like back when I was a raw vegan or back when I was eating the, the raw meat diet. There's no way that if I gave myself a choice every meal, like, okay, you can either eat whatever or this extremely restrictive meal that you've had for the past 20 days in a row. There's no way I'd be able to choose that every time 
if I let my mind think there was a choice, you know, so <laughs> it was a way of making it easier, that discipline. Wow. That's, that's a really good way of putting it. Carl, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but I am um, coming to the end of the, the time that I have available and you've already given me more than we, we agreed to when it comes to the time. So um, I think at some point in the future, we'll have to do a second part in which I want to ask you about uh, your views on, on the current state of science. Cause I know you, You've expressed some interesting opinions on that in other shows, and I'd, I'd love you to share that with the audience. Until then, where, where can people find more, more about you and your work? If they search for, like, there's the Danny Roddy podcast, and he has a YouTube channel. I've done a couple of shows with him. And those ancestral health symposium talks, one was mm-hmm. in 2016 and the other was 2017. They have a YouTube channel. Okay. And if, if, you know, people just search my name and ancestral health symposium, those will come up. Okay. That's pretty much it for right now. Okay, great. Well, Carl, I just want to thank you so much for your time, Amanda. I mean, it's obvious that you are someone who has not only thought about nutrition a great deal, but you've also investigated it and more importantly studied it in great depth and scientific rigor. And, um, I would encourage anyone who just listened to the show to, if they're, on any sort of super restrictive diet to maybe just just open their minds a little bit, right? Right. Thank you so much for your time, Carl. I appreciate you very much. That was my pleasure. You might not agree with everything Carl said. I know diet is something that is so yeah, it's such it strikes such an emotional chord with people, myself included. And you know, when I've kind of came to the perspective, and again, it's just a perspective, it might change, but when I realized that I had been eating in perhaps not the healthiest way for almost 30 years of my life or almost 20 years of my life. And I'd been denying myself certain foods and and things because I believed that it was healthy to do so. And when I found out it wasn't potentially as healthy as I'd been told, I was kind of pissed off. And my my initial reaction was an emotional one. And yeah, I mean, no one likes to to figure out that they've been wrong about something, you know? and when you combine that with this emotional nature of, of what food is to people, it can be very difficult to hear. What I would say if you listen to that is, and, and, and you were doubting it or believing it, just do some further research of your own. You know, Realize that, as I said in, in the show notes on the website, it's not always as the, the, the science on nutrition, and in particular ketogenic and low-carb nutrition, is not always as cut and dried as we'd like, as we, we would like to believe. And as I said in the show, like 30 years ago, everyone knew that low fat was the way forwards. You know, fat was bad for you. You should never eat it. It would give you heart disease. Everyone knew that was a fact, right? And just think about that now. We live in a, an era in which we've just replaced the word fat for sugar or fat for carbs. Everyone knows now that, that carbs are bad for you and sugar is bad for you. And what if that's not the case? What if we're wrong about this one? I mean, we've been wrong before, right? So again, ultimately as well, that's something I keep coming back to is, you know, your health and your nutrition, your diet is your responsibility. It's not Kyle's responsibility. It's not my responsibility. It's not the FDA's responsibility. It's up to you. And at the end of the day, if you, you know, as the Oracle says, know thyself. If you know yourself, you know how your body reacts to certain foods. You know what makes you feel good. You know what you're craving and what you really need. You know the effects of the foods you eat 
and you study these things and become observant of them, you will figure out the best things to eat for yourself. Because ultimately, there is no one best diet for anyone, right? There isn't. My wife lives on pastries and cookies and <laughs> and chips. It's, it's fucking crazy, I know. But she's lean and healthy and she's energetic, right? When she eats mainly vegetables, she doesn't feel good. Like it gives her stomach issues and gives her like a lot of negative health things. And so who are we to say that that's something wrong with her? Maybe that's just the way her body works, right? Like I personally, certain things don't do well for me either. I don't like pastries and, and, and flour and, and, and wheats and grains. It doesn't work for me. So I just don't eat it, right? But I can eat steak all day, right? It makes me feel amazing. So it's up to you. You're, you're the expert, right? You are the expert of your body. You have the owner's manual. <laughs> so just realize that the power is in your hands. You just have to be observant and, and you just have to put in a little bit of effort to figure out what's best for you. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please share it on social media. Take a screenshot on your phone. Just post it to your Instagram or your Facebook. And also remember, guys, leaving a review helps me a lot too. Also, as I said at the beginning of the show, if you want to change your life and take it to the next level, you might want to do some one-on-one coaching with me or come to the retreat out in Hawaii next year. You can find information for both of those things at liberationmentor.com. The retreat specifically, it's liberationmentor.com forward slash retreats. Okay, guys, peace out. 